Good morning. Thank you. Morning. Welcome, true believers, to the book of Hebrews. And so, um, as I usually do, I start out a new study on a new book or epistle with uh, some background on um, you know, the aspects of that book, when it was written, who wrote it, who we were writing it to, and that sort of thing. And we're going to do that again today. And I think we'll take the first half of this class to go through um, kind of the details of the book leading up to the, to the book, or in this case, maybe epistle, we'll talk about that. And then we'll take the second half of the class to actually read uh, the text of first, Hebrew, uh, first chapter of Hebrews. And we are doing an overlap with Dan in his sermon this time. And this is kind of an experiment for us to kind of um, have a overlap with what's going on in the message in the main service with what we're doing in Sunday school. And as I understand it, uh, the kids are also going to be doing, at least in the youth group age, going to be doing some overlap with Hebrews too, which is awesome. I think it gives our, you know, our church an opportunity for the high-level view um, and definitely multiple aspects. Uh, I'm not the only person who teaches this in the world, and it's good to hear from multiple people what they think <clears throat> uh, at a high level in the message. And then in here, we can do the deep dive. And so... You know, the people who are here today, you, you've, you've been through this. You know how I do this. Um, I, I often ask three really important questions when we're, when we're studying the Bible. And I say these are the questions you have to ask if you really want to get something deep and meaningful out of the text. What do I ask? What are those three questions? <clears throat> who wrote it? Who wrote it? What's the second question I ask? Audience. Who was the audience? And what is the third question I ask? Where was it at? <laughs> where, where was it at is one. Where is important. Why was it written? Say it again. Why was it written? Why? Why was it written? Why? What'd she say? Why? Why was it written? Why was it written? Oh. Okay. So, Thank you. yep. You know, and so this is, this is my exhorting to you or, or kind of, you know, encouragement to you is to say that because you have decided to be a part of an adult Bible study, you have, you have said to yourself, I think, I want to understand the text more at a deeper level to know what it's really trying to tell me so I can get more out of it. Awesome. That's great. That's why I do this. I think that's why you're doing it. Um, <clears throat> To simply just crack open the good book and start reading something randomly, yes, you can derive some meaning out of that. Um, <clears throat> the problem is that it is never the full story. And, and what I tell people is, at all times, as you read the, the Word of God, which this is, the Old and New Testaments uh, for a Christian are the Word of God in written form. To understand what it's really saying, you have to ask these three questions. Now, <clears throat> we're going to start today with who wrote it. Because, as was uh, asked of me before the class started, and I know for a fact, if you read any kind of uh, you know, commentary on the Bible, or you have an introduction to Hebrews in your, in your study Bible, uh, or you've done a study on Hebrews before, the number one question people ask themselves is, what? Who wrote it? And specifically, what do they think or argue about? They think maybe Moses, but they're not even sure. I don't think they think Moses. Not Moses. <laughs> Paul. Paul. Did Paul write it? Did Paul write the letter to the Hebrews? I so, would say no. Okay. I'd say no because I've read all of his letters, and yep. Hebrews is nothing like any of them in style or content. Okay. Until you get to the very end, and then it sounds <laughs> a little bit like Paul, Good. I think. 
So it could be, yeah. <clears throat> my theory would be mm -hmm. maybe it's uh, Barnabas, or okay. it could be, you know, so I'm reading in the commentary mm -hmm. in my own Bible, yeah. and it's referring to, or the author refers to Timothy as his brother. Mm -hmm. And so it's someone who had a relationship <clears throat> with Timothy, so you can rattle off maybe <clears throat> half dozen people that could qualify for excellent. that. Who else? That's excellent. <clears throat> Who else? What else do you think? Yes? In um, my poster at home, hmm? it has different chunks of what it is in Hebrews isn't in the section of what Paul wrote. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so someone who is probably very smart decided it was not part of the Pauline uh, epistles. What else? What do you think, Ken? Tell me. You can't look at my cheat sheet yet. You have to look at <laughs> Don't look at this yet. <clears throat> you know, honestly, I'm, I'm not super familiar with Hebrews. <clears throat> um, my favorite verse is in Hebrews. Yeah. Oh. First favorite section, but other than that, I don't. I mean, it's I'm just not super familiar. To as if to say, I wouldn't know who mm -hmm. to even guess. Here's what I'm going to implore you today, and I'm going to take a different direction than probably any of you may have thought, or maybe your Bibles have thought, which is this: when I ask you to ask yourself who wrote what I'm reading here, this is what I want you to do. I don't want you to try and think of a name. Now here is the first trap that almost everyone who studies the Bible falls into. I want to know the name of the guy, and it's always a guy, who wrote the scripture I'm reading. Now the problem with falling into that trap is this. You completely miss the point. <laughs> you completely miss the point. When I ask you who wrote the passage that you're reading, I don't mean the name. Now, if you can give me a name, awesome. You know why that's important? Because it tells me what I'm about to tell you, which is important. You can tell me Paul of Tarsus or Saul of Tarsus wrote this. You can tell me Luke the Evangelist wrote this. You could tell me Barnabas wrote this. You could tell me Priscilla or Aquila wrote this. You could tell me, literally, <laughs> and every name mentioned in the New Testament at one point or the other has been argued for the author of Hebrews. It doesn't matter. God's the author. Ah, <laughs> uh, you, you just saved 10 minutes. What are you doing? Uh, you know, we skipped to the, I'm kidding, I'm joking. Taking the low hanging fruit. That's yeah, good. No, he's got the table back. He's all, he's all. Right. You he's get the low fine. hanging fruit and everybody else can carry the heavy load. <laughs> That's good. That. good. Now, yes, God was the author. And I don't think any of us would argue that if you are a Bible believing Christian, you believe that all of the word of God is the word of God. Is not the word of Paul, it is not the word of Brian Freeman, it is not the word of insert name here. But, but this is what I'm getting at. <coughs> who was the kind of person who wrote it? Ah, that's what I'm getting at here. Who wrote it? What kind of person? Now, when you ask what kind of person, when, when you want to know the name, I would argue this, you're not even asking the name. In your own mind, you may not even realize this. In some ways, you don't care who the person, the name of the person was, what well, you're really getting at, who was the kind of person? Because if I say that Paul the Apostle wrote it, what am I saying? I'm saying a person that knew firsthand Jesus, who was told by Jesus directly himself to communicate this to others. He was a person who was very familiar with the Old Testament and Jewish 
practices. He was very familiar with the first century. If I say Paul of Tarsus wrote this, I'm saying someone of the first century wrote this and was familiar with the issues going on in the church at the time. That is what I mean by who wrote it. Now, I'm going to encourage you as a budding biblical scholar or an advanced biblical scholar, depending on your, on your place, <clears throat> focus on that. What kind of person wrote this? Now, that tells you a lot of what you need to know about the other two things. If I kind of know, the, you know what kind of person is writing this, what is their background? What are their beliefs? What is the time in which they live? What kinds of issues in their culture are they, are they responding to? Then all of a sudden, the audience makes a lot more sense. Oh, well, if I'm talking about this kind of person who wrote it, and I'm reading kind of the things that are saying, now I understand what kind of people are the audience. And who was the audience? I mean the exact same thing. What kind of people were the audience? And, and then the why means a whole lot more. <laughs> now that I know who is writing it and who they're writing it to, the kinds of people, suddenly the why it was written makes a whole lot more sense to me. It helps me to, oh, when they make these obscure references to this or that, now I get what they're trying to get at. Why were they saying it this way and not a, another way? The fact that it was written potentially by someone who was a Jew in the first century, probably undergoing persecution, um, to a group of believers who maybe haven't completely bought into the Christian message means a whole lot more to me than if it were written in the 10th century BC by a Jew who didn't even know Christ. You see where I'm getting at? Who was it written to? Let's talk to about that. church or non-believers? Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that. It's a great question, sweetheart. So let's start with who wrote it. And now that I'm going to free you from this, this maybe burden, and I'll call it a burden. Good morning. This burden of who was the name of the person who wrote it, that's out of your mind. You're going you're to play along with me today. You're going to not care about the name of the person. You're going to care about the kind of person. Now that you're free to now interpret the kind of person who wrote it, let's talk about who that is. And what, what uh, Steve was saying in the very beginning is awesome. Let me just say this. If, if you get anything out of this class, and, and all the people I'm seeing here have been here many times, it is not that I want you to become a computer of memorized material of stuff I write on the board every day. Now, if you do, that's awesome, right? Makes me feel better. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's all about you. It is. It is about me. Thank you. And that I should put that at the top. It's all about Brian. The whole Bible is Hebrews. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> what I want you to get out of this is how do I find knowledge and truth from the Bible? I want you to do exactly what I'm doing here. Now, I don't necessarily want you to spend an hour every day doing this. You can, and if you do, that's awesome. <coughs> I could use some help. <laughs> um, what I want you to do is put on your critical scholar hat every morning, because you're reading the Bible every morning, or every day, at some point. And I want you to ask the questions that I'm asking. What, what is the evidence that, that leads me to understand the answers to these three questions. What evidence do I have that says who wrote it? What kind of person wrote it? What is the evidence I have that says who the audience was? And what is the evidence of the why, why it was written? Let's go through the evidence here. If you read all 13 chapters of Hebrews, it becomes very apparent there are some key, <laughs> key details, both subtle and nuanced, uh, nuanced and direct, 
that, that tell you who this person is. First of all, it is blatantly obvious that a Jew is, is the author. It's a Jew because why? In the very first, and we'll read this in a minute here, the very first sentence of the first chapter tells you, in the past, God spoke to who? Our forefathers. Well, right off the bat, you know it's a Jew. Okay? Right off the bat. And then from there, I don't just take one piece of evidence as a conclusion. The sum total of Hebrews turns out this person is very knowledgeable of the Old Testament. <laughs> and in chapter 1, chapter 1 is basically the Old Testament. You remember those 80s shows where... <clears throat> Maybe there was a writer's strike, or maybe the budget was low. So every once in a while, you get one of those recap episodes where the gang is around, and they're talking about the good old times. You remember this? And then it's basically a clip show of all the old episodes, and you're like, I just got bamboozled <laughs> into watching this when it's just a lousy recap show, right? Well, luckily for you, the fact that this is a recap show is super important in the New Testament. And the author of Hebrews takes a painstaking approach to identify key passages of scripture from the Old Testament that support this person's conclusions. And because of that, it's very obvious that they are knowledgeable of the Old Testament. And we'll skip to this in a minute here. <clears throat> Where is this? <laughs> this is not an off-the-cuff prose. I'm just going <coughs> to say it right now. This was carefully crafted. This, and, and maybe to the point of Paul's letters, I think Paul puts, puts a lot of thought into his letters, but sometimes they, they appear to kind of be off the cuff in the moment, responding to a very immediate issue. This was something that I would argue was thought of for months, maybe years. And the author has carefully thought out all of the, the, the arguments, the logic, the deductions, the conclusion, the approach to put together something that many scholars today will say is the finest crafted work of the New Testament. It is the best Greek of the New Testament. It is the most logical and organized writing of the New Testament. Someone has put a lot of thought into this. So this is someone who is very intelligent. They're very knowledgeable. And almost all of the references, it's another clue, and you wouldn't know this from reading it, are from the Septuagint. I say the LXX, and I want you to know this when I write this. Code, what is the Septuagint or the LXX? It's a Greek version of the Old Testament. This is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. Wait a minute, you just said Hebrew Bible. Yes. During the time of Christ, so few Jews who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire could actually read or write Hebrew that the Jews wrote a Greek version of their Bible. Now, that turns out to be the source or really the Bible for the New Testament authors. <clears throat> And the fact that this author is quoting not the Hebrew version, but the, and, and because you know it, and you're like, well, how do you know it was? Well, because when you compare what we know is the Hebrew version and the Greek version, there are subtle differences in the way that things are explained or certain words that are used that don't really correlate to the Hebrew. So it's very clear these were probably Greek references and not Hebrew. <clears throat> this person does not an eyewitness. If you read it, there are both very explicit and subtle references, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, for instance, in which the author is, is making it pretty clear the person who's writing this really didn't, didn't witness all of this, didn't witness the events of Christ himself. Now, right there, <laughs> that's, you know, okay, I'll get to that. I'm not going to say that. All right. Probably not an eyewitness. 
In the end, we have this thing thrown in that makes everyone think this is an epistle. It is not an epistle. It is not a letter in which the author claims to know Timothy. And, and we can be relatively sure <laughs> this is the Timothy of Paul's Timothy. <clears throat> so someone who knew Timothy, who was a companion of Paul in the first century. Well, we'll go through this. From Rome, at the very end as well, there's a reference to those of us from Rome greet you. Now, now it's, scholars have argued for 2,000 years what this means. Does it mean someone is physically in Rome writing? It could be. <clears throat> it could also mean people who have lived in Rome and now are working abroad um, could be the, the source of this. And remember, people write from their own community, so this could be a reference to the people that this author was hanging out with. They're familiar with the practice of angel worship. Now, this is something you may not know just from reading the text or maybe even from your own commentary. I talk a lot about the Dead Sea Scrolls. What were the Dead Sea Scrolls? Written from the Essene community. Yes. Thank you. So the other scrolls of Old Testament books that they found in Israel. Yeah. The Essenes were a sect of Jews. There were three sects that we know existed in the first century. What were they? The Essenes were one. Who were the other two? And you know this. Sadducees. 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 So those are the three. The Essenes are not specifically mentioned by name in in the writings we have in the canon of the New Testament, except we know for sure that they existed. One of the things that the Essenes got really hung up on, and again, real quick, they were a Jewish community, not Christian community. They got really hung up on some very specific things, and they kind of broke off from the mainline Judaism of the time to establish their community in the desert at what's called Qumran today, <coughs> where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. One of the things that they stood out apart from the other Jews is they were really focused on angel worship. And this might surprise you, but at one point, they became so enamored with angels and spirits that they actually worshiped them. And at one point, one of the writings of the, of the Dead Sea Scrolls makes a, makes a reference to the fact that they saw the archangel Michael <laughs> as greater than even the Messiah who would come himself. Now think about that for a minute. What does that tell you? That tells you at the time that this was probably written, it was written to people who were being influenced by either directly a community that saw angels as superior to all humans and superior to the Messiah who would come, and in fact was so strong that they were worshiping those angels. How many people know people who kind of worship angels today in one way or the other, <laughs> right? And, and let me just say this, there's another really important reason why I want you to know what kind of person wrote it, what kind of person was the audience, and why it was written, why? Because this is not just esoteric stuff from 2,000 years ago, folks. The whole point of what I want you to leave this room every day at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning and do is to go out into the world and say, how can I apply what I've just learned to my life? Is there angel worship today? Heck yeah. Are there people that think the angels are above humans? Heck yeah. And it's obvious this author is is familiar with this. (laughs) The author does refer to himself in the first person and because Greek is a a, uh, gender language, it has genders, he refers to himself in the male participle, which means he, he, it's a he. And, and this doesn't surprise us because this, while it could have been influenced by females and certainly uh, helped to be composed, almost certainly it would have been um, 
uh, written by a male and circulated by a male. Sorry if that disturbs you, it's not my, <laughs> not what I would have done, but that's the way they did it. He knew the recipients. Why? Because he seems in the end, again, to know specifically who he is writing it to, <clears throat> but he's being a little coy about the specific names. Again, names have been changed to protect the innocent. This happened in the first century, too. <clears throat> this is the kicker. And this is the final piece that I think has really caused division amongst Christians since the first century. Now, I'm going to just tell you right now, um, time, time is a big important thing. And when I asked, you know, what are the three big questions about, about the scripture you're writing, someone said, when was it written? Yes, that is really important. Usually, if you know what kind of person and, and the audience and what they're writing about, you can derive uh, uh, when it was written. Now, in this case... There are multiple references to the practice of sacrificing on the Jewish altar as a present tense continuing thing. Well, and there's like 10 or 15 references to the sacrificial system of the Jews in Jerusalem as being a current practice. So you're thinking before 70 AD? That is, that is the big thought of, of most scholars that, well, 70 AD, again, key dates, I don't want you to remember everything. I don't. 70 AD is a really important period. It's a turning point because in 70, the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple to the ground. There was only one altar. And, and you know, we get kind of caught up in the synagogue idea. Yes, there were synagogues, places of worship in the first century scattered throughout the Roman Empire. There was only one altar. There was only one place where sacrifice happened, and that was in Jerusalem. <clears throat> After 70 AD, that was over. That was the last time that there was any kind of... <laughs> We think official practice of sacrificial uh, official system going on in Jerusalem. We think that there could have been some underground or black market, uh, and I know this sounds weird, um, sacrificing going on after that in kind of a hidden thing, but, but it, it almost certainly um, was not anything that lasted for very long. So if the temple is intact and the, and the altar sacrifices are still happening, it has to have been written before 70 AD. You don't have to raise your hand. You just well, I just want to wait to you. So, do you have a personal idea where who is the author? Yeah, I know who is the kind of person. Oh, but not an actual name. So now you missed the first part. Yeah, I was out. Yeah, the front door. And that's that's so you can yeah. It's the kind of person, and and we'll talk about this later. I want to go back yeah. to that, but what I don't want you to get hung up on is the name. Okay. This is the key. If you look at the kind of doctrine that's being espoused, even, even, the, even the words themselves, God is a God of peace. Jesus as the image of God. Jesus lowering himself to humanity. Righteousness by faith. And it goes on and on. These are Pauline <coughs> ideas. These are ideas that seem to be uniquely Pauline, at least in the beginning, in which his epistles espouse over and over. This idea is ritual as a service to God. This idea of freedom from bondage. The ideas of linking certain ideas from, and again, this, and again, that, and again, that. The sword of the Spirit. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Um, inexperienced children, uh, uh, you know, uh, drinking milk, and, and, uh, and experienced Christians eating meat. This idea that Christ provides access to God. The idea that afflictions are a fight or a struggle, but a righteous one that will be redeemed by God as a just God in the end, and so it will all work out. 
a Christian life as a race. Agonizomai, that's the, that's the Greek. Um, <clears throat> these ideas are Pauline. There's a huge amount of Pauline ideas and doctrine and even kind of phrases that are woven into the book. So who was the author of Hebrews? It's at least someone who knew Paul. <laughs> it's at least someone who knew Paul either directly or knew him from his, his writing. But when you put all the evidence together, someone who knew Timothy, probably in Rome. Um, so if they're from Rome or in it, it probably means they haven't been kicked out yet. It all starts to say that this looks like something that was written in the middle of the first century. Now again, do I know the date on the calendar of when the book of Hebrews was written? I don't. Do I know the name of the exact person who wrote it? I don't. And again, that's the thing I want to take away. We're, we're done with this now, which is don't get caught up in this. It's crap. It's, it's stuff that will deceive you and pull you off of the path of what really matters. Finding the name of the exact person doesn't matter. And if you spend all of your time worried about that, you will completely miss the point of why this was written. So it's not Nicodemus. <laughs> It may have not been Luke either. And again, okay, I'm not going to go down this, this path here, but a lot of people argue that the Greek is excellent. Maybe Luke wrote it. Maybe he did. Again, you have to also remember that a lot of writing of the first century was dictated by a person who was the author. The source came from a person who was actually espousing the ideas, but was written in pen to paper with a scribe or a co-author. <clears throat> this was very common. It could have been Luke or someone else who actually penned this because he knew the Greek, um, but it's probably not Luke as the source. And, and, and I say this again, Luke is the only Gentile to have penned scripture. He was not a Jew. He is not the, he is not the <coughs> source or the author of this. Okay, now we know kind of the person kind of person who wrote this. Now it's starting to make a lot of sense. Who was it written to? Right off the bat, you can see <laughs> it's to a Jewish audience. It's to a Jewish audience of, of both Jews, who are not yet Christians, Jewish Christians, who either are believers and are starting to fall away or to Jews who intellectually have been persuaded by this message but not yet committed. They haven't pushed the button yet to say, yeah, I'm all in. Um, obviously, by the words and what this author is saying, it's obvious this is to someone who uh, is familiar with the Old Testament. Why does a Jew make a lot of very specific references to the Old Testament? Well. If, if a lot of their content is references to the Old Testament, this is just like a scientist writing a paper, because I want you to understand that there is law or facts or evidence, previous evidence that supports our theory. Well, they're communicating to people that knew that law and knew that, that scripture. <laughs> There's so much of this in Hebrews. This person is writing to people who, by this point, and, and the, the author actually says this, you should have been teachers by this point. You, this is not something new for you, but you're still needing to learn the basics. You should be eating meat right now, and all you're doing is needing milk, more milk. There's a lot of references to persecution. There's another clue to when this might have been written. 
obviously the community that this author is writing to and a member, it may have been originally addressed to a single person with a single name, but it's probably meant for a community. Community is facing persecution, multiple references to strife and, and hardship and trials. Well, we know from history, multiple accounts from history, when in the first century, Christians themselves were undergoing persecution. We know that it happened right after Jesus ascended into heaven. There was the stoning of Stephen, and this was the first persecution of Christian Jews in Judea. But that was short-lived. It scattered the Christian community out and, you know, paradoxically caused its rapid growth. But it was, it was, it was pretty much right here in the early first century. The second one was Nero in the 60s, late 60s. Nero persecuted the Christians. We all know the story. Blamed the burning of Rome on them. Um, <clears throat> And, and that was a fairly significant persecution. Again, that was by the Romans themselves. But that seems to have died off a little bit. After 70, maybe they thought they had fixed the problem by burning Jerusalem to the ground. Because again, the Romans saw the Christians in the beginning as just Jews um, that were causing trouble. And then we have another pretty major uh, persecution that happens in the end of the first century. Um, by Domitian, one of the Roman emperors. And when that happens, things got really bad. Um, Christians were being killed, they were being murdered for their faith, and that's actually when John wrote his book uh, of Revelation, the Apocalypse. So if this persecution is happening and it's before 70, it's almost certainly happening here in the late 60s. So again, do I know for sure? No. Is the evidence there? Yeah, this is the evidence I have until I have a better theory or more evidence. That's the theory I'm going with. Late 60s, probably to a community that knew Paul and Timothy and his friends. <clears throat> they had ceased regular attendance. Now this is, this is a clue too, that these Jews or Jewish Christians had started off strong. They had fire in their belly. They were all fired up, okay? But at some point it looks like they had stopped attending worship services with their brothers and sisters at Christian meetings. And it started to become, they become less attentive to the Christian instruction and doctrine. What does that sound like? Forever. Forever. It wasn't just a thing 2,000 years ago. This idea of belief in the old system. Now the people he's writing to, and again, we're gonna go through this, 13 chapters are essentially this for 13 weeks, in which the author over and over again makes the claim the ritual system that you're familiar with, the law of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Moses, those were all important. They were imperfect. Hebrews is all about the imperfect system you had and now the perfection of that system through Christ the Messiah. But these people can't let go of the old times. They can't let go of the past. They cling to these rituals and sacrifices and laws and covenants. And, and by doing so, they've become weary of this Christian life. Do you think maybe that they, uh, you know, at the time, the new Christians assumed Jesus was coming back right away, yeah. months after he died, and then it turned into years, and, you know, what started out as a big fire, yeah. and let's all live together and, and get ready for Jesus, because he's coming right back, now it's starting to take on a different turn a little bit, and... They're probably starting to question, all right, 
we bought into this thing. Yeah. Now here I am, I sold my land, I gave up everything, and I got nothing. Maybe we need to go back to the old ways. And so then this author is saying, wait a minute, time out. Don't go back to the old ways. He lays the case and then goes on to remind them, hey, what's, what's really important? How much is... Ryan says they're facing persecution. Mm -hmm. they're, they're being killed. Mm -hmm. and you're saying, hold it. If I go back and do it in my own ways, yep. people love to survive. But right. now, when I get behind this Christ, um, we're being killed. Isn't it interesting how history repeats itself <laughs> and we're living it now I mean I just want to say you can learn all the history you want but unless you understand what the history meant then you're never gonna fix the future I could write I could write 1450 BC on this timeline what was happening during 1450 BC that is exactly like this King David is that the no this is Exodus. it's Exodus and what were the Jews saying in the desert of Sinai at the time <laughs> Let's go back to Egypt. Yes! Why, things were better in Egypt. Why don't we go back? This sucks. This sucks. And God completely over and over, and he's so patient with us, tells us, I got it. Trust me. It's going to be okay. But we are human beings, and we look at the past and go, well, things were better. I thought they were How many of us look back on the past with rose-colored goggles that if you really think about it, you're like, maybe they weren't so great in the past. Right? But you think they are. Today, you could, you know, fast forward to, to 2021, 20, same thing. Well, things were better. I wasn't being persecuted. I didn't have the, I don't have the fire in my belly. And that's a big one, folks. You know, something new and shiny and exciting happens and you're all in, right? But then months go by, years go by, time and age and experience wear on you. And you start to say to yourself, you know, maybe I don't have the fire I had anymore. And, and Hebrews is an excellent example of someone saying, I'm going to relight that fire for you. And that's what we have to do. Again, jumping to the end. Our application, we've got to relight that fire, folks. Keep it going. Keep it going. I mean, that's, the, that's the temptation of the devil oh. that says, you know, you give up this, and you can have the whole world. Mm -hmm. You just yeah. give this up. You know, that guy, I mean, it's real easy to become resentful of the guy that's over there just living willy-nilly. He's got the boat and the camper and the... Yep. You know, name fill in the blank. Yep. That we can covet. We're over here just sacrificing everything. Yep. For what? Yep. That's it. I'm going to shut up now. Thoughts. But we'll read Hebrews 1 here in, in a couple of minutes. I want to get your feedback here. Obviously, I'm not the only one that studies the Bible. What, what have you taken from Hebrews if you've read about it or you've read commentaries about it, introduction to it? Um, maybe knowing what you know about the Christian community in the first century, again, if you've been in my class before and all of you have, you know something about the first century and what's going on. Well, it seems like Matthew is a companion to this because mm. it's for the Jews proven mm -hmm. that Jesus is the Messiah. Mm. And okay. uh, now this one's here just re reinforcing that he is the Messiah, this is how you follow. And probably right. Galatians would uh, goes, okay, you got it. not everything is that important in the, from the past. Mm. I like it. Well, I'm sure part of it was written, or all of it was written back then, is to help the people at that time mm -hmm. dealing with the problems that were happening. Yeah. Now, they didn't have the Bible to go to like we did. But then we take it and read it and say, how does that apply to us? Mm -hmm. And then how do we use that in our lives and for helping others? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But they had the Torah. 
which led to a lot of this. Which led to a lot of this. Okay, let's read Hebrews chapter one. Um, it's fairly short, one to 14. Who would like to read that for me? I can read it. Thanks. Okay, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times and in many different ways. But now in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. God has chosen his son to own all things and through him he made the world. The son reflects the glory of God and shows exactly what God is like. He holds everything together with his powerful word. When the son made people clean from their sins, he sat down at the right side of God, the great one in heaven. The son became much greater than the angels and God gave him a name that is much greater than theirs. This is because God never said to any of the angels, you are my son, today I have become your father. Nor did God say of any angel, I will be his father and he will be my son. And when God brings his firstborn son into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This is what God said about the angels. God makes his angels become like winds. He makes his servants become like flames of fire. But God said about his son, God, your throne will last forever and ever. You will rule your kingdom with fairness. You love right and hate evil. So God has chosen you from among your friends. He has set you apart with much joy. God also says, Lord, in the beginning you made the earth and your hands made the skies. They will be destroyed, but you will remain. They will all wear out like clothes. You will fold them like a coat and like clothes you will change them. But you never change and your life will never end. And God never said to this, said this to an angel, sit by my right side until I put your enemies under your control. All the angels are spirits who serve God and are sent to help those who will receive salvation. Excellent. <clears throat> what is the content of this passage? Really establishing Jesus as, <clears throat> as authority is yeah. set apart, different. Yep. Set apart or different from what? He really hits on the angels yep. and the angel worship that was yep. evidently going on. He quotes seven passages to prove the point. Who, when the Old Testament referred to the Son of God, who did the Jews of the period think he was talking about, they were talking about. The king. The king. We get caught up as Christians, maybe not knowing the Old Testament in the, in the, in the belief system, but at the time when David was the king, Solomon was the king, those people were seen as, quote, the son of God. Why? Because you have to remember the great chain of being. This is like the English way of saying it. <clears throat> there was this assumed authority structure in the universe in which God is at the top and the king of your country was second. And, and often, the, even the priests weren't second. It was the king of the country. Why? Because the king was supposed to have been imbued with the authority and power and divine right to rule that God had given that person. And the Jews were no different. They saw the king as, quote, the son of God. And a son, in that sense, was not a biological sense. It wasn't like I, I begat this person. It was, you are now my kind of heir. Um, I have anointed you as my heir. You now have the keys to the kingdom. What they failed to realize was that God, through his word in the Old Testament, was setting the stage for something that meant much more than just a king. Now, he is a king, 
but he's something greater. And who is that son of God today, of course? Yeshua. Yeah, Yeshua, right, exactly. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. What else? What is the content here? It's a lot. Well, it's interesting. You pointed out those seven quotes. That's one of God's numbers of completion. That happens a lot. And um, maybe that lends credence to a Jewish author again, because they would yeah. see a lot of meaning behind that. Well, if it's two Hebrews, <laughs> you've got to put the numbers in for the Hebrews. I love it. See, now I like this. Well, I like this. <laughs> he refers to Jesus as being there in the beginning. Yes. So he was Trinity. Now, when you say beginning, what does that mean? Beginning of what? Yes. Beginning of creation. <laughs> like when God made the heavens and the yeah. earth. Yeah. Jesus, beginning creation. of right creation, time. Now, now, folks, I can't stress <laughs> this enough. This is huge. This is huge because it refutes the idea that Jesus is just a what? Yeah. Man. A man. Or a prophet or anything. He's not just a prophet. Not just, is, but not just a prophet, a man, a human, a created being. This is big. Now, right off the bat, you have to start to realize, again, who is he writing this to? Who is he writing this to? Jews. Jews, or at least Jew, people who were Jews that are now turning to Christianity. If you tell someone that there is another being in the universe who has been around as long as God, what are they going to think? Wait a minute. <laughs> right. Like, Wait. What's that over there? Stone, right? <laughs> <laughs> They're going to try and kill you. Why? Because that is blasphemy. This is why Jesus got killed. The Jews wanted to, you know, pin all of this talk that he was saying on you are you are committing blasphemy. You are a heretic. There is what? The Shema, which is what? There God is how many beings? One. The Lord your God is one. What else? That's, also, a, that's a big one. Also refers to him as forever future. Ah. Forever past and future. Eternal future, too. What would this say to someone of the period? Remember, we're talking about people now, probably not eyewitnesses to Jesus. Where's Jesus? He's at the right hand of God. Well, where is he here? Inside us. So it's, it's 65 AD. <clears throat> I, I was born in 40 AD. Did I know Jesus personally? Like, did I meet him and see his miracles and see the, 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 the miracle of the loaves and, the, and walking on water? Did I see any of that? No. Where's this guy Jesus you keep talking about? You see what I'm getting at, right? All of a sudden you have this whole community of people who, a whole new generation who had not been eyewitnesses to Jesus and his miracles now we're asking this question, wait a minute, you just said Jesus is the eternal future too? Where is this guy? You can see how now it starts to get pretty obvious what's happening in this community. They haven't seen him physically, uh, probably for the most part. How does that relate to today? You say he's alive? We just celebrated Easter last week, folks. <laughs> Jesus is alive, huh? Where is he? He's in heaven. You know the answers, right? You know the answers, right? And this is the point, is that now the author has to contend with the fact that these people don't get it. 
right? And they are, they, are, they are responding with valid arguments. In fact, you've probably asked this question too, whether you want to admit it or not, I know you have. All right, great, you're still alive. How come he's not still walking the earth, right? Well then, that's why you have to read the word. And the word says what? Why is Jesus not walking the earth today still? Yes. Because he's in heaven with God. Yes, and so. But he gave us his Holy Spirit, which is even. He's like, I have to leave so that the Comforter can come and be with you. Jesus was one guy. (coughs) Jesus was one guy. Where Genesis 1, he says, we'll make man in our image. Ah, You'd be a great author for Hebrews. So now you are referencing the Old Testament to use it the way it was meant to be. I was going to bring up the Holy Spirit. Yep. He said, bring that up to them. They're all, huh? There you go. Now, as a believer, hmm? God sent the Spirit into yeah. us to be with us. Not the mm-hmm. angels. Mm-hmm. But there we go. There Spirit. we go. Who's also God. Mm-hmm. And then really take them. And we've heard that so much as yep. present-day Christians that it just makes yeah. sense to us. But that's it. They didn't. That's yeah, it. you go through the Old Testament, and there's not a lot of mention of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's a new concept to them to buy into. Yeah, but King David wrote about it in his song. Yeah, we know that. And I think that's yeah. his point. We get that because we understand the truth now. These people didn't. They didn't I mean, have that. Least, what, what's that. They didn't have that re- the resources that we do. <coughs> well, even today, you talk to the Jews today, it's the same issue. That's why you got to go to Isaiah um, 59 or 39. What about his stripes? and be hanging on the cross and all that from King David, the, the Messiah will be. No, it's Isaiah. Here's my question to you. What did the author of Hebrews figure out when he was writing to this community? What did he figure out? And, and this, is, this is key for us today. This is a key application principle. Know your audience. Know your audience. If I'm going to start with a new believer today, here's my application. I walk into, um, you know, maybe I walk into a library and I'm chatty and I start chatting it up with somebody. And someone's reading a book on atheism or something like that. They have no background in Judaism. They have no background in Christianity. They probably never read the Christian Bible, the Holy Bible. Are you going to start (laughs) blasting them with Old Testament scripture? Well, you could, but is it going to be effective? Because no. they don't see the Bible as authoritative, they right? They don't see it as authoritative. They don't know the references you're making, and all of it is Greek to them. <laughs> it means nothing. The author of Hebrews got this right, right on. He knew his audience perfectly, and he knew exactly what evidence he could use to show them. Now, I lead us back to the Holy Spirit thing. How do you convince someone, whether they know the Bible or not, that the Holy Spirit is the substitution for Jesus on this earth? By his effect in your life, okay. is one I think. What else? Effect on your life. What else? Holy Spirit brings God's word to our mind. Okay. Word to mind. What else? When we need it. <laughs> How do you convince someone the Holy Spirit is working in this world, folks? This is your. You show them evidence. You show them evidence in your life. You show them evidence in other changed lives. That's I mean, it. you, you prove it. it by what's been happening. Because if, let's face it, if, if, if there hasn't been any changes, then we're just barking, mm-hmm. you know, noise at people. Mm-hmm. Well, you and, do it for them. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, by example. Yeah. Oh, this is so good. Now you see what I'm getting at. And I can see all the wheels turning in your head when I ask this. This is important. In some ways, I don't care if you can recite all the kings of Israel and Judah to me. If you can, awesome, let's talk, because I, I love that stuff. That's not what's going to convince people that the gospel is real. And again, you're not going to convince anyone. The gospel is, has the power to change people, not you. But this is the kind of stuff you need to be thinking in your head. Who is my audience? What do they know? What's their background? And what is the evidence that's going to mean something to them? Oh, you're an atheist. Well, I heard that your sister uh, is a Christian. And how's her life getting on? Oh, great. Um, she's at peace. I'm, you know, I'm making this up. Um, she's at peace. Um, her kid, she has a strong family structure. Um, uh, her kids are, are you know, well-behaved. Uh, they attend services regularly, they worship, they're happy, they have peace. Um, through the last year of COVID, they have hope. Well, how much hope do you have? None. How much hope do you have? None. I have no hope, and I want the rest of the world to be as miserable as me. Well, your sister seems to be getting on pretty well. In spite of her having cancer, in spite yes. of all the calamities in yes. her life, I and mean, that's... Yeah, people wonder why do good th bad things happen to good people. Well, it's so we can show an yes. example of how to handle these things and that there is a change in our lives and that that's what the difference is. That makes people angry that believers can be happy. We have a hope. It makes some people unhappy, but remember the seed that fell on the ground. Remember, there's four different places the seed falls, and we tend to, as Christians, focus too much on the seed that falls on the rocky path, on the rocks themselves, and in the weeds. We don't tend to remember the fourth group. There is seed that falls on fertile soil, and when you share the gospel with others, yes, three out of four people, <laughs> I hate to say it that way, three out of four groups of people will probably eventually not get it. One group will, and it's okay, it's okay. But that's the, you guys are thinking in exactly the way you should. Think about it, how this makes sense. You may not get it. <laughs> I barely heard, I didn't even hear her rattle on that stuff over there. So. They may not get it today. Yes. But it's not like us. Yeah. And we share today, and they may, oh, take But really, there's only one of those four groups that it doesn't take at all. The other ones, they do yes. take it. But <clears throat> through lack of discipleship or lack of, yes. like, that's where it falls away. Yes. So more people are receptive, yes. I think, than. At least initially. And I think, again, this is where the author of Hebrews knew his audience. He knew they were the people in which the seed had fallen on the rock and had fallen in the, in the weeds. But he also knew that some of them were like us, and I hope you are in that fourth category. I do believe that Hebrews is also written to people like me, who I absolutely believe in the Word, and I am trying every day as hard as I can to serve God and to give him my offering. Look, this class... I'm really glad if you something comes of this class that changes your life. That would be great. Um, every day I get up and I, I look at this and what I'm doing as my Christian service as an offering to God. I hope that my service is pleasing and acceptable to God. It's like my offering. I give my offering to the church. It's, a, it's an act of faith. Your time is a sacrifice. Your money is a sacrifice. Your effort is a sacrifice. I hope you treat it like your offering, that at some level I'm giving it to God and trusting him that he's going to do the right thing with it. Yeah, I kind of want to know how it's being used, and of course that's important to be good stewards, but at some level I'm like, I gave it up. I gave to the poor person. I gave to my church. At some level I'm going to trust that that was a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice on the altar of my life to God. 
If it bears fruit, that's for God to worry about. If you get something out of this class, awesome. I think that's great. Um, I hope you do. I hope people who listen to this get something out of it. But that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it to offer and sacrifice my life to God. I get something out of Hebrews, just like the people who are falling away. I hope the people who are falling away also get something out of it. Okay. Let me quick refer to the who's the audience. I'm going to refer to a conversation that you and I had on Friday. Yep. And I asked, how is this gentleman? You know, what's going on? Have you talked to him lately? How's he doing? Yep. Blah, blah, blah. And what you said was, hey, you know, maybe kind of hit a little bit of a roadblock here, a dead end yep. with him. However, I think maybe you could get through to him a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so the conversation was, I mean, I think a lot of times, if I come across someone that I'm sharing with or you know, I, you know, hoping to convert, if you will, I don't know, that's, I, I hate to say that, but I get caught up in that it's, this is on me and I am the only guy, and obviously God put that person in my life and I need to do this, but there's resources around us as well that somebody else that might know the audience, right? This is awesome. This is exactly right. You don't have to do this alone. I also, I also had a conversation with somebody that's in counseling yep. and was sharing <clears throat> an experience in life that I can relate to. Yep. And so I was able to say, did this counselor ever share you know, the hardship or the, the wounding of her life? No. I'm like, well, let me share mine. You know, I mean, here's, I mean this is the... This is, whatever the reference is, First Peter, you know, may the God of all comfort comfort you in your time mm -hmm. so that you in turn then can comfort those. Mm -hmm. So I may not have, my, my story is not going to relate to everybody and that's going to fall on the rocky soil. But when my story does relate, yeah. How easy is it to get discouraged about this? But you know, you're partly right. It is on you. It's on me. It's on Laura, Brian. You know, it's on us to share the story, but it's not on us as to whether the, the soil produces yeah, we still have the fruit. Seed. Right. How many of the people do you think the author of Hebrews, to this community that, that he wrote and shared, 100% say, you're right, author of Hebrews. I'm wrong. How many? 20%. Well, I mean, just think about Paul's life. Yes. I mean, he went so many places, and he was like rode out of town on a rail like so many times. Like he's like you know stoned to death. I mean, they like left him on the side, he rode dead. Like, and you know he got up and hobbled to the next. And town because and of that, going. two thousand years later, in the new world, right. you he's, know he's Paul's writings. All of us a lot. Because it worked. he kept going. He didn't just stop after the first stone and it. shipwreck. And, That's it. You know, Persevere. Else, Persevere. Yeah. All right. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week.